Well, good morning, everybody. Would you please join me in opening up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6. And just before we get into the passage and sermon this morning, um, I want to lay out what our plan is going to be in terms of worship services, Sunday gatherings through the spring and summer. So welcome to the month of May. We're now in month 14 of stranger than normal gatherings. And so we... um, sent out an email on Friday that hopefully you received, which did kind of lay out our proposed schedule from May through August that uh, you can have and hopefully, you know, print out if to have it accessible. So I just want to take a couple minutes to flesh that out. Um, And it it goes without saying on month 14 here that any plan that we have at Grace Church is held with a loose grip because we know that it could be subject to change. But with that said, we we are fairly confident of just kind of the direction we're moving in as a church, just with everything that's happening in this uh, kind of schedule that we're going to have here through the summer. Um, But with the warmer weather, there's essentially going to be three kind of Sundays between now and August. Uh, first is what we have today. It's gonna, this is going to be the most kind of regular gathering of the next few months. It's two indoor services, uh, 9 a.m., 11 a.m., uh, where the 9 a.m. has a limited capacity children's ministry. Um, the second kind of service, which will be once a month starting next week, will be uh, two services, the 9 a.m. indoor service, Um, with registration, and then an 11 a.m. family worship service outside. Um, So that's going to be, again, once a month. That family worship service will be led by Megan and her team. If you were with us last summer, last fall, we were doing that fairly regularly. And now with the weather, we'll kind of pick that back up uh, for the next few months. Um, And then the third service, and don't worry, there's no quiz on this. You won't be quizzed later. uh, But we'll kind of remind you week by week. We just kind of want to lay it all out. The third service will just happen a few times. It's going to be on the holiday weekends. So Memorial Day weekend, uh, 4th of July lands on a Sunday this year, fun fact. And then Labor Day weekend, we will do one service combined outside. And that will be a regular worship service. So again, each week we will kind of be reminding you of what the next week's going to be because registrations will still go out on Monday mornings. And uh, anything that's indoor will be registration required. Um, Anything that's outdoor will not require registration. Um, But, you know, just aside from Sunday morning, we are uh, in the midst of also just planning on having as many kind of outdoor fellowship gatherings as we can. Uh, Mary talked about the newcomer's luncheon. That's going to be outside. Uh, So if you, uh, if there's any kind of concerns there from safety protocol, we're going to ensure that that is going to be as safe of a gathering as possible. So we encourage um, really anybody who started coming over the last year to come to that. because we'll be doing outdoors. But then with kids and youth and adults, from family nights in the summer to men's and women's events to youth gatherings, uh, we're going to be outdoors just as much as possible and leverage the good weather and opportunity for as many people to continue to be able to gather. Um, And Lord willing, to be honest, um, heading towards fall, what we're all hoping for is that we are just going to be approaching more normal gatherings again, uh, where we can ease and eventually lift all the restrictions Uh, Among others, probably just not having to register. I mean, I think uh, our process hopefully is as simple as it can be, but I know it can get monotonous that every single week, every single thing, we're having you register. Uh, So we're hoping at some point to be able to ease up on that. Uh, We're, Lord willing, in fall, be able to have a fully open kids ministry. Um, But I don't want to put timelines on things. I don't know when we'll get there, but we will get there um, at some point. And 
uh, kind of alongside that, we as a staff and leadership want to ensure that we are planning accordingly uh, to be able to ramp up our gatherings where they're kind of fully open and restriction-free in terms of serving teams and rosters. Um, For the most part, over the past year, the vast majority of the church has not had to serve because we've had nowhere for you to serve with just all of our um, kind of restricted gatherings. But we are in a place where we just want to start rebuilding those teams, um, especially now that we suspect, even when we have no restrictions of numbers in this room, that we're still going to be at two services, just with um, kind of our um, anticipation and with the recent growth that we have experienced um, that we are going to be at two services. So with that is kind of um, obviously double the need of kind of serving and having serving team rosters. And uh, pre-COVID, we kind of have always been a church that said, hey, we want um, everybody at Grace Church to be involved on at least one serving team on a Sunday morning at Grace. That, That we know that our church life is not just Sunday morning, and yet Sunday morning is the most important aspect of our church family and our weekly gathering. And so we want everybody with everybody's gift set and time and commitment to serve on at least one team um, on our Sunday morning uh, ministry teams where you'd be serving approximately once a month is what we would anticipate. And so to be transparent, we're kind of in this weird place now where we want to start rebuilding that and kind of holding ourselves accountable and rebuilding those teams, but we're not really sure in terms of where everybody's comfort level is to be able to enter into that space yet, or if it's kind of a not yet, but eventually I'll, you know, you guys will be comfortable enough to be there. So we're kind of in that in-between now. And so how we're going to approach it is that, um, you know, we just want to be in touch with you in terms of, there's really, if you boil it down to four teams, the largest is our children's ministry from birth through fifth grade. Um, And then we have our hospitality ministry, which includes Grace Connect and check-in and greeting, uh, security, and then um, tech and worship. So we just, our, our, our charge and our kind of vision for everybody is that everybody just find one team that everyone has some involvement on a Sunday morning team. And so if you can be praying about that, and if you know, hey, this is where I am and where I want to be, um, you can kind of let us know that on a connection card, um, either physical one, or there's a QR code of the bulletins in the pew in front of you that you can do it online. Obviously, if you're joining us online, you can do it there uh, to kind of indicate what team is you're interested in and whether you're ready to start serving now or just at a later date. And so we're kind of, again, in this season of uh, rebuilding, resetting, re-envisioning what our ministries are going to start looking like. And we are just excited about the days ahead. Again, don't know when we'll be there, but by God's grace, uh, we will be there and we want to be prepared for it. All right, let's dig into this passage, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be picking things up at verse 16. I want to start like this, um, that you may or may not have noticed that um, a month and a half ago, there was an old television show that has been revived, it's been given a makeover, and re-premiered. And the show is America's Most Wanted. It's a show that first began in 1988, And then it was the longest-running show on Fox's network until it was canceled in 2011. Um, And now, 10 years later, it's been revived. It has a new host, Elizabeth Vargas. And um, I have not seen the new version yet, but upon hearing about it, it brought back all kinds of memories 
for my childhood. You know, this show, in terms of ratings and impact, kind of the mid to late 90s was its kind of largest kind of standing in the greater culture. And I remember um, growing up in the 90s always being conflicted whether to watch. I had older brothers, so if you have a bigger family, you know the youngest kid, you just stop policing what they watch. You're like, whatever, you know, they're number four. They'll just watch whatever their brothers watch. We hope it works out for the best. Um, and, but the nature of America's Most Wanted is to tell the story of a criminal and then at the end told they're actually on the loose. Okay, so for a kid seeing that, and it, I always remember like watching it at night and it's dark, it's like, okay, uh, show's over, good night, time to go to bed. Like, what? You expect me to go to sleep right now, right? How am I supposed to sleep when this guy's on the loose? And all kinds of memories coming flooding back. But at the end of each episode of America's Most Wanted, you'd see a picture of the alleged criminal, um, a little bit maybe of their body type, height, weight, eye color, and then in big red letters, you would see the word reward with a dollar amount next to it. And the reward was to give incentive to those watching that they would be able to help in the search of America's most wanted. And if you provided the tip that led to the catching of a fugitive, you would be given a reward. And uh, maybe one of the reasons why the show was revived is that I saw a stat that over the course of the first 24 years when it was running, that due to tips coming from the show, they caught almost 1,200 criminals and 43 abducted children were rescued. Um, so, like, tips work. These incentives work. These rewards were given out. And I thought about that this week in preparing for this message because part of me wants to say, isn't it kind of discouraging that they had to offer a reward, that that was necessary? Like, like, wouldn't it be ideal that anyone who was watching would not need that kind of incentive, that just the fact that there's criminals on the loose in your country, your county, your city, or neighborhood, is just reason enough for people to carry out their civic duty without the promise of a reward. And yet, not only in America's Most Wanted, but rewards are commonplace in society today. So my question is, is it wrong to offer rewards for good behavior? Is that tapping into one of the more fallen aspects of human nature? Well, I think some people would be surprised at just how much Jesus talked about rewards in the Christian life. And I think we give less attention to it than we ought to. And on one level, I understand why. We are Protestant Christians, right, from the Reformation. We are formed and been shaped by that Reformation where uh, it was affirmed and reaffirmed of the scriptural authority and of justification by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. We, we say, as often as we can, we are not saved by our good works, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Amen, amen, amen. But as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus gave, it's recorded in chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, we're currently in the middle of chapter 6, this chapter is loaded with warnings and cautions related to the Christian life. And the, re the word reward is mentioned seven times. The word treasure, as we'll see this morning, mentioned four times, that Jesus is giving us incentive for. 
So what kind of reward is Jesus talking about? And how can we think well and, Lord willing, live our Christian lives with the right attitude towards the kind of rewards Jesus talks about while not slipping into some kind of works-based righteousness? That's our mission this morning. So let's go to the text. We're going to be in verses 16 to 24, but we're going to begin with verse 16 to 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm going to be relatively brief with these three verses because we're going to spend more time on verses 19 through 24. Not because we don't think fasting is important, but because this is a very similar teaching that we've previously heard in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus is warning about hypocrisy. That's the point here. He's warning about hypocritical living. He did it first with the example of giving to the needy. Second, with praying, which led him to take the opportunity for an aside to teach the Lord's Prayer, which we covered the last two weeks. And now he returns to his third specific example of hypocrisy, and this time it's with fasting. So it's the same concept, now just a different example. But whether it be giving or praying or now fasting, this is an outward behavior that Jesus is warning against doing for the sole purpose of being seen by others, being rewarded by the praise of others and not God. And Jesus just knows this is a major temptation of the heart. It was 2,000 years ago when he said it. It still very much is today. That we can take outwardly righteous behavior in order to feed an inwardly sinful desire, and that is the praise of others we love being praised and affirmed. And we talked about that at length in previous sermons, so I just now want to just offer a brief word on fasting. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was required to fast under the Mosaic law once a year. By the time of Jesus' arrival, the Pharisees had upped the ante, and they were fasting and requiring others to fast twice a week. And this, they thought, showed just how devoted they were. And as Jesus says, everyone knew the day that they were fasting because they made themselves look physically worn down. If anyone asked how they were doing, they'd say, oh, I'm, I'm fasting today. Just, I'm just so disciplined, so devoted. It's the kind of people who always find a way to boast or mention their own discipline into every conversation, right? The kind of person who says, hey, what are you having for lunch today? Oh, that's cool. I'm fasting. <laughs> I'm fasting to the Lord today. But enjoy your lunch. I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll taste good. And ironically, by disfiguring their faces, as Jesus put it, they are disfiguring the practice and discipline of fasting, so Jesus kind of says simply, he says, rather than do that, how about this? Act normal. 
appear before others like you normally appear because your fasting is not for them to notice you. It's done for the glory of God. And this example is both similar to and distinct from the example of prayer that he just went through. And, and fasting is often associated with prayer. And it's similar in that fasting is not this formula. It's not that, okay, when you really want something from God, you fast. And then you'll get it. Right? Just like the Lord's Prayer is not like, hey, just say these once a day, and then God's got your back that day. So it's similar to prayer in that way, but it's also distinct from prayer and that while prayer is to be done regularly, fasting is occasional. It is done for a specific reason or a spe special circumstance. And it's one of many examples in the Bible that shows the intimate connection between our physical bodies and our spiritual souls. That we are eternal souls but with embodied features and needs. So fasting is a physical action. It's the absence of something. In the Bible, it's always food for a spiritual purpose. So at this point, you might be asking, okay, well, if it's for a special circumstance, what is a special circumstance? Why should we fast? What are the circumstances that call for it? Um, I'm going to be brief here. There's going to be a graphic on the screen. If you're at home, this will flash up on the screen in front of you. Uh, I know it's written small, but I'm just going to, I'm going to read it fast. You won't be able to copy it down. So you can take out your phone, take a picture, reach out to me. I'll email this to you. Here are 10 reasons. If you curate the scriptures as to why people fast in the Bible, here's what they are. Number one, to strengthen prayer. Number two, to seek God's guidance. Number three, to express grief. Number four, to seek from God deliverance or protection. Number five, to express repentance and the return to God. Number six, to humble oneself before God. Number seven, to express concern for the work of God. Number eight, to minister to the needs of others. Number nine, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God. And number ten, to express love and worship to God. Ten reasons why people fast in the Bible. And so fasting upheld as this uh, needed thing, this, this very vital thing in the Christian life, but not one that can be done just so that others can see and be impressed by you. When you do it, do it for the glory of God and for a biblical purpose. From here, Jesus is going to now pivot, but it's connected. After giving three examples, specific examples of warning against the reward of praise of others, Jesus is now going to transition to give three metaphors to warn, against the re to warn against living for the reward of riches. Okay, so the beginning is the reward of praise, and now he's going to warn against the reward of earthly riches. And with that said, let's jump into Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I am resisting the temptation, and if you know me, this is not a surprise, to spend an entire sermon on each of the three metaphors. Because I want to see us to see how connected they are to one another and to the rest of the chapter. And that Jesus is kind of has the same aim here. He's providing teaching on the Christian life and contrasting true rewards from God with false rewards of the world, first with praise and now with riches. And these three metaphors we're going to walk through one at a time, starting with number one, two kinds of treasure. Number one, two kinds of treasure. And the two kinds are treasure on earth, treasure in heaven. And Again, he goes from speaking about the individual specific examples of giving and praying and fasting to now kind of talking about the Christian life as a whole, that all of us, to a man, to a woman, to a child, will set our hearts upon either treasures on earth or treasures in heaven. This is an either or. One will have your heart. Both cannot And so if we break it down, he says of the treasures on the earth, he says they can be taken away by moth, by rust, or thieves. And and, uh, commentators think that Jesus selected those three things to correlate with the three primary aspects of wealth for Jews in the first century. And those three aspects were clothing, food, and valuables. Clothing or garments were considered part of one's wealth, which is why it was so radical back in chapter 5 when Jesus said, if someone takes your tunic, which is a shirt, he says, offer him your cloak also, which is the outer garment, the most valuable garment. And to that, Jesus says, all garments, all your clothes, no matter how costly, one day will yield to moths. And then food. We also talked back in chapter 5 how salt was vital in this time, not to season and flavor your food, but to preserve it. Salt as a preservative. To preserve meat, especially from decay, because they had no refrigeration systems in the first century. I mean, I was just thinking about this this week. How different would our lives be if there was no such thing as fridges? No such thing as a freezer? How different would our lived experience be? day in, day out, week in, week out. So the decay of food was a constant fear every single day. And the Greek word translated to rust is, um, can also be translated vermin. If you read the NIV, you, you see the word vermin there. And the reason is that the Greek word is a translation from a root word meaning eating. Rust or vermin that eat away at food and destroy it. So clothing, food, and then third, valuables, where thieves break in and steal. In a world without banks, insurance policies, safe deposit boxes, 
anything valuable you owned was either hidden in the clay or dirt walls of your home or buried in the ground on your property. So Jesus is saying, do not put all your hope and joy and self-value in the treasures of earth that can be taken or destroyed. But rather, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then you get to verse 21, and he brings it all into focus. Verse 21 gives us the why for this entire passage. He says the word for. Uh, here's an aside, a Bible reading tip as you interpret and read scripture. Anytime you see the word for in your Bible reading or because, circle it. Pay special attention because that's a ground clause, meaning you're about to hear why something is being said. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus makes the direct, clear connection that for all people, in all times, our lives will be controlled by what we love most. When the Bible talks about the heart, he uses that organ that's beating in our chest in the center of our body to describe the core of our entire being. It's our central command. It's the cockpit of your soul. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. And so Jesus says how we view treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, how we view wealth, no matter how much or little we think we have, exposes what is true about our hearts. And listen, these verses are important for all people in all places because it's the Bible, it's Scripture, it's God-breathed. And we all know you don't need to be wealthy in order to be someone who sets your heart upon treasures on earth, right? People can idolize treasure in all tax brackets, you know what I'm saying? But with that said, for a community of believers like us in the suburbs, where consumerism and materialism is the air we breathe, whether we like to admit it or not. Church, this is for us. Now, having lived in the suburbs, and, and specifically these suburbs, my entire life, I can't, I've lost count a long time ago how many times I've been reminded by pastors, teachers, parents, friends, in every rich way, that um, we are among the richest people in the world, if you look at the stats. And we never think we are, because we're comparing ourselves to other people who are the richest people in the world. And we can all find that person who is richer than us. And so what happens is these teachings are always, um, not, always not always, but are often meant to guilt us in some way. Right? And, and there can be the bad attempts to guilt us for how rich that we are in the suburbs, and it might just take us a few seconds to shake that off. That was a bad attempt. Or I can think about some really good attempts, like a good one-liner that got me. Like, oh, man, it actually took a few days to shake off. That even took a week. So my goal is not to guilt us for how we have more stuff or more money than the vast majority of the world, but I do think that this line... For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We should not so easily shake that off. When this is more pointed for us than 98, 99% of the world. 
I was sobered by the thought this week, and I know this might sound a little strange, but if Jesus himself were going to come preach to Grace Church one week, if he was going to preach one sermon at a church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, I wonder if this is the passage he would pick. That's not about quantity of wealth, because wealth is not evil in and of itself. Wealth is a gift from God. It's a gift to be grateful for, but it's about what wealth can so often do to those who have it that is dangerous. It is why where Jesus lamented elsewhere, oh, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't it true and kind of unbelievable that those who have the most in the world also are the same ones who always want more. There's a um, professor out in the Midwest, James K.A. Smith, and he wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And in this book, he's writing about shopping at the mall or shopping online, which is probably more relevant in the year 2020 and 2021, how the the mall or online shopping is a religious space where people treat it and are motivated by felt needs. And he writes this, the quote will be on the screen. He says, quote, We come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. In this worshipful space, we take off our earrings and hope they turn into gods who save. Whether that's to stave off boredom, or to feel as if we are creating a home or a body that is beautiful and inviting, or to get a rush from whatever is new, novel, and numbs our ache when all is not right with the world, we ask what we buy to save us. The things of this world are not evil, nor is the money that we have to buy them but how we treasure them makes all the difference. Consumerism and materialism are not just distractions from God. They are replacements for him that promise the same salvation, but are powerless to provide it. That's number one, two kinds of treasure. Number two, second metaphor he gives here, rapid fire, two kinds of vision. From two kinds of treasure to two kinds of vision. Let me read it again. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This second metaphor is more connected to the one before it and the one after it that we'll see in a moment than many realize. First, Jesus gives an easy-to-understand metaphor for his hearers, uh, both then and now. He said the eye is a lamp. If the lamp is clean, if it's healthy, it illuminates the room. If that lamp is dirty, the light won't carry. You can also think about this like a window. If, If a window is clean and the sun comes through the window, it lights up the room. If the window is full of pollen, which it certainly is after this last week, your room is not clean. It's dull. All right, if spouses are jabbing each other right now, like, you got to clean the window, like, keep me out of it, all right? Like, you got to sandal that on your own. But we know the, the rule stands. If a window is clean, the room is lit up. 
But here's what's often lost in translation about these verses, is that that word used there, healthy, if the eye is healthy, is a word that in the Greek can also mean generous. And the word bad in verse 23 can be translated ungenerous or stingy. And it is translated that way elsewhere in the scripture. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is a, um, a book called the Septuagint. And it was the commonly read Old Testament um, that was used by the Jews um, in Jesus' day. And the same word here in Matthew 6.22 is translated um, this way in Proverbs 11.25. Whoever brings blessing, same word, whoever brings blessing, whoever is generous will be enriched. And who wa- he who waters will himself be watered. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated generous. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, same word as healthy, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And then the word in verse 23, translated bad, if the eye is bad, is translated this way in Proverbs 23, 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, Same word. Do not desire his delicacies. And the context of that fits in with the theme of these three metaphors together because the one before it speaks of treasure and wealth and the one after it that we'll see in a moment speaks of God and money. If your eye is generous, the whole body is full of light. If your eye is stingy, the whole body is filled with darkness. And here's, I think, the point. Materialism shuts out the light of Christ. Materialism shuts out the light of Christ, both in you and those around you. Because it most deeply treasures our things and not the giver of those things. Which impacts the way we generously love our neighbor, the way that we sacrificially invest in the kingdom building work through the church. So I think at this point, it's a natural question to ask, okay, what's it look like to steward your money wisely then? What's it look like to have our treasure in heaven and, so we can, and, and not have your treasure on earth? What does it look like to have a generous eye? As we scan scripture, I think the best and most practical teaching comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, where he's advising Timothy, who's a young pastor in the rich city of Ephesus, and he says this, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That is clear, convictional teaching from Paul to Timothy. Do not be proud of riches. Do not set your hope on the treasures of this world. Why? Because God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And because that is true, the things of this world are meant to be enjoyed, but not worshipped. Rather, do good with the treasure you do have. 
be rich in good works, be generous, there's that word again, and ready to share. And so church, just a clear applicational point for us, that we cannot say that we are for doing good, or for justice, or for loving our neighbor, if we are not sacrificially giving to those ends. It's easier to say something, to post something, but if we really want to know if a person cares, if we really want to know if a church cares, look at their budget. This is the primary reason why a few years ago we at Grace Church wanted to increase the percentage of our budget giving towards missions and mercy and justice initiatives to be over 20% of the entire budget. Because if, if we want to disciple people to be generous and sacrificial in their giving as Jesus did to Grace Church, then we as a church want to model that generosity to kingdom building work outside of these walls. But one more thing on this point is that while Paul and Jesus are talking primarily about money, this also applies to the things that money affords us. How we steward the things that we have for kingdom purposes. And again, I just think about our context in the suburbs. In an area like ours where our church is located in, at the top of the list of things that we treasure that money buys are the homes or the places that we live at. Ashley Hales authored a book called um, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Finding Holy in the Suburbs. It's a book that someone recommended to Pastor Joe when they learned he was, tra- he was transitioning from urban ministry to suburban ministry. And then he told, and turned me about, told me about it, and I recently read it and found it helpful. But she wrote a chapter entitled, quote, When Your Worth is Measured in Square Footage. And in that chapter, Hales writes this, again, quote on the screen. We long for a house as a marker of who we are. Socially, a house is evidence of our success and achievement of the American dream. Houses substantiate our financial status, reputation, and taste. The story of the suburbs is the story of a house. The single-family residence held out an answer to universal hunger for safety, shelter, beauty, and ease. It is not wrong to desire a home that you love. It is not wrong to love that the, the home that you're in. But the question is, do we view our homes as castles that close us off from others or as places of hospitality opened up for others? Christians with a healthy eye, a generous eye, see the home as a conduit to grace-filled fellowship, both within the family unit and outside of it. So one tangible way to place our treasure in heaven is to use our treasure on earth as a means to build the kingdom. Mike Wilkerson writes in his book, Redemption, quote, God wants to do something in you, yes, but beyond that, he wants to do something through you. He wants to make his name known, What would it look like to use our homes as a tool to make his name known? A generous eye lights up the whole room. Okay, quickly, number three. Last one. Two kinds of masters. 
There's two kinds of treasures, there's two kinds of vision, and now there's three, two kinds of masters. And the final verse of this passage serves as a concluding word for this passage and the sermon. That no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus goes from the general to the specific. In general, you cannot have two gods. It's just an utter impossibility to have two gods. At the end of the day, everybody in the history of the world is a monotheist, a belief in one God, even if they would not call their God a God or would claim that they have multiple gods. It's not possible. One will always lead. One will be in the driver's seat of the heart, and there's only one steering wheel. The way to know which God you serve is to ask, what is it that you treasure most? One way to know what you treasure most is to ask, what is the one thing you cannot live without? The answer to that question will trace your way to your God. And that is true in general. And then there is the specific application of the this point in the context with Jesus' teaching, he says, you cannot serve God and money. Money makes for a great gift, but a terrible God. Money is not evil in itself, and it can be used either for good or for evil. And it boils down to how we began. What reward is the deepest incentive for us? What reward is the deepest motivator? Is it the acceptance of and praise from man and the riches of this world? Or is it the praise from an eternal reward from God who already displayed his acceptance of us and forgiveness for us by sending his only son to die on the cross, by raising him up to new life for you, who has filled you with his spirit to equip you to live and store up your treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how you continually make your name known through your word to us. I thank you at I, how I'm almost continually surprised that when we study and see the scriptures of things spoken and written thousands of years ago, that they are still as relevant today as they ever have been. Lord, forgive us for the times when we do find our identity rooted in the praise from others and the riches of this world. And Father, I pray that we would be reminded of all that you have done for us, of what you're doing in us and through us, that we can strive to live for your glory because you have already strived after us. And to echo what Paul writes in Philippians 4, 19, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And it's in the name of that son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing and prepare to take the Lord's Supper together?